0: My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors on staff. I'm excited that you're here with us. I have a few uh, business items that we need to get to before I get to the sermon. The first one is this week is a big week for us here at church. It is Good Friday and Easter. Just to remind you, you've heard about this? Yes. Love the excitement. Uh, first up, Good Friday is coming on Friday night. A little bit of change this year. We're only doing one service. It's going to be starting at 7 o'clock. No childcare, but this is a friendly place for you to be able to bring your whole family out on the lawn. If you're newer here to the church and you've never been to one of our Good Friday services, I would highly recommend it. Uh, And not just because I help lead things around here, but because it's really good. Uh, You get to be under the stars, outside, beautiful weather, worshiping together. It's an incredible opportunity. You should be there. It's going to be great. And then Sunday morning, we'll be right back here in this room. At nine o'clock and 1030 for Easter Sunday we're going to pack this room out and we have baptisms at all the, at both services, which is going to be really exciting. Actually, this morning, we kicked off Holy Week. Uh, we had a prayer walk that we hosted walking around campus and praying and I know some of you were there which was really great Uh, there was a moment during that prayer time where I invited the people who were there to engage in a practice with me and I'd love to extend that offer to you one of the things we kind of wrapped our time up with was some silence to ask God who would you put on my heart for me to invite to Good Friday and Easter services this year Uh, and then we talked to each other about who those people were and I would love to offer you the same invitation. This week, be thinking, praying about who would you uh, like to see come with you to Good Friday and Easter to hear the good news about Jesus here at this church. It's going to be an incredible time. We'd love to have your friends and family join us. Okay, number two, uh, you may have noticed the last couple weeks, Connor, who's normally leading our worship team, hasn't been here. Jonathan's been doing a great job filling in. But yeah, good job, Jonathan. He's been doing great. Uh, Connor's not just slacking off. He kind of had something big happen. Um, He had a baby. Actually, his wife had a baby, but he had something to do with it. That's their second son. They have a son. Uh, So Lamai is their little girl. And then they just had a little baby boy named Daniel D. McKenzie. What a great Little musical roll off the tongue there, Daniel D. McKenzie, love it. He's a great baby, at least according to them. But everybody's a little biased, so we'll we'll be the judge of that. Uh, but Connor will be back after a few weeks of taking care of his family, and uh, we're really excited to see their family. And then the last thing, Neil caught me right before service started, and he said, "I forgot to tell my salties." So now, if you go, "What are salties?" That's fine. This isn't for you. You know, if you're a salty, uh, there's no salt this week because of Eastern Good Friday prep. So there we go. We're gonna continue on in our sermon series. Uh, Actually, we're going to be wrapping up our sermon series, The Servant King, uh, closing out this study in Isaiah. But before we get to it, I want to talk to you a little bit about the small town that I grew up in. So I grew up in a tiny little town in North Dakota. And when I tell people that I grew up in a small town in the Midwest, or the plains, or the upper Midwest, or however I say it, people go, oh, I grew up in a small town too. And then before I show my cards... I always ask them to define their small town. And then usually it's like, well, there was only 15,000 people or there was only 8,000 people. You know, we were a one-stop light town. And then they asked me about my town. And I was like, well, we barely had electricity. We were a one-stop sign town because we couldn't afford the light. Uh, And really, it would have been a complete waste of time because there wasn't any traffic. We had 350 people in the town that Rachel and I uh, grew up in and ended up in our sixth grade class in elementary school together. and one of the one of the downsides of living in a really small town like that is that there's not a lot of activities for people to engage in other than probably gossip. There's a lot of that could go around but activities not a ton. But in the summer on the 4th of July weekend, we would always have a great time as a community. The day would start with a uh, slow pitch softball tournament in which, A bunch of teams from the surrounding little towns would get together and play uh, slow-pitch softball together. I was the star right fielder of my team. If you don't know anything about slow-pitch softball, that's code for I was no good. Uh, (laughs) But I was on the team. And uh, we would play softball all day, and it was a great time, and lots of old guys that were probably past their prime, but they were trying to pull it out one more time, and they would drink a lot of beer. That's usually what would happen, just trying to be honest with you all. And then the evening would come, and the best part of the day would happen when the local uh, Legion members, the American Legion members in town, would put on a fireworks display uh, for the town, which sounds really great, except for they were the same guys that had blamed playing softball and drinking beer all day. <laughs> so as you can imagine, it was a sketchy affair at best. But as a kid, I always looked forward to it. And the thing that you looked forward to at uh, even a small-town fireworks display was the grand finale. The thing that you were looking for was when this thing all culminated in this moment of joy right at the end and hopefully that's what we're going to experience today where everything we've been talking about after over the last eight to ten weeks just comes together in a crescendo to really let us know what is the point of this study on the servant king. And when you say grand finale and you say fireworks, usually you expect that to be really loud, really flashy, and really big. And that's not the way this grand finale starts. Instead, it starts quietly with an invitation. The scripture, if you want to follow along in Isaiah 55, is going to be on the screen, but you can follow along in your scriptures, or in the Bible, uh, starts this way. Come. All you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy. And eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. The grand finale of this study in Isaiah on the servant king is an invitation to come to a meal. It's an invitation for anyone who is thirsty, anyone who is hungry, to come and be satisfied. To come and to buy milk and to buy wine without money, money that comes without cost. Now, the temptation in hearing an invitation that says money can't buy it is to assume that it didn't cost anything. The reality is is that the New Testament picks up this language of a feast and who paid for it all over the place because although it is free for you to come to the table, it was not free to purchase this meal. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, when the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, he says, "...for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ." that though he was rich for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich now that language might be a little hard for you to follow if you haven't been around the church much in your life what he, what he's saying here is that Jesus had everything that was needed everything that could possibly be owned Jesus owned and he gave it away and became poor so that you could become rich in fact Shakespeare, old Bill Shakespeare, uh, he has a quote in one of his plays, as you like it, that says this, the fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. The fool thinks he's smart, but the wise man knows that he's actually a fool. If we were to rewrite this, because, you know, it's just Shakespeare, why not? uh, This is what you could maybe say, the spiritually poor man thinks he's rich, but the spiritually rich man knows that he's poor. This inversion of expectation is exactly what's being laid out at the beginning of this chapter in Isaiah 55. Come to the table, and the only expectation to being able to come to the table is understanding you have nothing to offer to be here. The expectation of payment is that you have nothing of value to come to the table. It's being offered to you freely. The only thing you need to know is that you have nothing to offer. The text continues and it says, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what doesn't satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest fare. He asks a rhetorical question. Why would you spend money on something that you can't eat? Why would you work hard for something that doesn't satisfy you? I think it's a really great question to ask all of humanity. I came across a quote this week from uh, Warren Buffett who is one of the greatest investors of the modern age. Uh, There was a book that was written about investing and in it it quotes Warren Buffett and this is what he says. He's ridiculing a group of defunct financiers. So this is money men who lost their money and here's what he says about them. To make money they didn't have and didn't need they risked what they did have and what they did need. And that's foolish. It's just plain foolish. If you risk something that is important to you for something that is unimportant to you, it just doesn't make any sense. I love this quote because I think it really gets to the heart of the matter in this issue. What Warren Buffett is saying about these rich men is that they leveraged the very thing that they needed to survive in order to get more that they didn't even need. They were investing and risking their lives. They were giving everything that they had to a goal that amounted to nothing. They risked everything that they had to gain something that had no importance. What kind of sense does that make? He says it doesn't make any sense. In fact, it's foolish. And what God says to Israel is, why in the world would you spend money on something that doesn't actually fill you up? Why would you give your labor, your heart, your efforts, your cares, your anxiety, your fears to something that will never pay off in the end? It's a great question. And then he says, here's what you need to do to avoid that. Listen and listen good. Listen to me because I'll give you something to eat that will be good and you will have the richest of fare. In a day and age in which a meal usually consisted of old bread and water, the idea of being invited to the table of a king to eat the richest of fare was an absolute, unbelievable offer to be given. Then he says to them, here's what you need to do. Give an ear and come to me. Listen to my voice and come near. Why? So that you may live. I love that he sets this expectation that seems very pedestrian and low. Come and get bread. Come and get something to drink. And then he says, if you listen, you're actually going to live. This is a life or death situation. This is about starvation. This is about dehydration. This is not just about a nice meal. This is about survival. This is about living. And he says, if you do this, if you listen to him, if you come near What he's going to give you is the same thing that he gave to David, King David, an everlasting covenant. Now, if you're not uh, an ancient Israelite or if you haven't been around church for very long, uh, David doesn't seem like that significant of a character, but you have to remember this is the hero and the founder of them as a nation. When they look back wistfully for the good old days, when we were somebody, when we had something to offer to the world, King David was sitting on the throne. And what they understood is that King David represented to the rest of the world the kind of king that they would want to be under. The kind of king that could really get things done and get respect in the world. And God says, if you listen to me, I'm going to make the same promise I made to David to you. I'm going to make that same promise to you. And then he says, here's what David did with that promise. The gift that I gave him, here's what David did with it. Because there was a responsibility that came with it. I've made him a witness to the people, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Now, it might seem odd to say that what you're going to get is kingship, because kingship, according to this, comes with rule and command, and we are autonomous, freedom-loving people. But the gift that David was to the Israelites is that he was a witness to the people of what it looked like to be a person after God's own heart and to live under his rule and reign. And he commanded and ruled the Israelite people in that way. That was a gift and it was a blessing and it became a witness to the people of what faithfulness looked at, looked like. And what God is saying to Israel in this moment in exile is that if you listen to my voice, if you come to my table, if you turn to me in repentance and faith, you will summon the nations of the world to you, people you don't even know, nations you don't know will come running. Why? Because the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel has endowed you with splendor. What he says is that our faith creates in us the kind of experience, the kind of people, the kind of community that will be a witness to our neighbors, that will be a witness to our world, and it will draw people like moths to a flame. They will come, not because we're so great, but because our God has given us splendor, his splendor. He's bestowed upon us. This is incredibly good news. I, thank you. <laughs> uh, when, I, when I moved to Arizona 23 years ago, w- Rachel and I spent really an uncomfortable amount of time avoiding the Grand Canyon. When you moved to Arizona, you know, one of the things that you have to do is go visit the Grand Canyon. And something in me as a person said, because you say that I have to, I will not. Uh, because after all, what is the Grand Canyon? It's a big ditch. It's a hole in the ground. Big whoop, you've seen one canyon, you've seen them all. Uh, And then I eventually was broken down and was like, okay, fine, I'll go look at the Grand Canyon. And we pulled up to the edge and we walked up to the side of it and I stood there with my mouth agape. I could not believe what I was seeing. And there's a quote that I came across that I think summarizes, it well, there will never be a photograph of the Grand Canyon that can adequately describe its depth, its breadth, and its true beauty. Now you might be sitting in the room today and you're hearing me talk about what it looks like to be part of God's community, what it looks like to be bestowed with his beauty and his blessing, what it looks like to be the faithful people. And I'm telling you right now, there is a massive amount of difference between hearing it described and experiencing experiencing it when you've come to faith in the community of God's people. There is something that cannot be described that is experienced when you come to God in repentance and faith and are welcomed into his family. And what we can offer is a slight taste to our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers. When I tell you to invite people this week, what you're being offered is the opportunity to bring them close to experience the depth, the breadth, and the true beauty of God's community at work in the world. This is an incredible thing that although words attempt to describe experience once you're a part of this community is something totally different now that's great news but then he's he begins to start to talk in a way that sounds like we've got some urgency here seek the lord while he may be found call on him while he's near this is great news but what seems quite obvious is that there is a timetable on how long people are going to have to respond to the free call to come to dinner. At some point, the meal is going to be served. And you might miss it. This is an invitation to come now, while he's nearby, while he can be found. And for Israel, who's in exile, who their enemies have lorded over them power and humiliated them, what they hear is great news. Good, we've already responded to this. We want to come back to you, Lord. We want you to pay attention to us. And then he gives them what seems like maybe not so good news. Let the wicked forsake their ways. Wait, not just us? Them too? Let the unrighteous forsake their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he'll have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon them. This is where God takes an incredible left turn from the people that he loves drawing near to making an offer to the entire world, even those that have been wicked and unrighteous. He says they're they're being given the exact same offer. Return, repent, come close, draw near, seek him. And if you do it, and if you do that, You'll be freely pardoned, and mercy will be found in that place. This idea of how long will God wait to do what he's promised to do is something that the church has wrestled with for a long time. In fact, Second Peter picks up this question that the church is asking. When will Jesus return to set all things right? When will the kingdom come to bear in the world? And what Peter says is the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some would understand slowness. Instead, he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. This is the good news of God's patient, loving offer in the gospel. He desires that we would come to him in repentance and faith through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he is not slow to fulfill his promise, he's patient. And that should be good news. If you're sitting in this room this morning and you have not put your faith in Jesus, then good news, there's still time. There's still an opportunity for you to be included into God's people, for you to experience the blessing and the promise that is coming and made in these texts. And now we might have some tension in that. I think Israel probably did. I mean, we see it in the stories of men Uh, like Jonah, who is given a job to go bring the good news of God's mercy to his enemies, and he wants to do everything but, because he hates the fact that God is merciful on his enemies. And maybe we feel that way sometimes. Like, God, I'm glad that you've given me my mercy. As long as you withhold it from those people that I don't like so much, that would be great. As long as you smite the enemies that I would like smitten, that would be great. Great. The problem is that's not the way God works, and he knows that we're thinking it because he continues, and he says this, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declared the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I think God understands the human condition in an absolutely acute way. And he understands that what we want to do is to give attributes of what God can do and will do and should do to ourselves. In fact, what we like to do is we like to create gods that I'd like to call familiar gods. These gods don't actually look anything like the real God, but they seem familiar to us. In fact, they sound like us, actually. And this isn't a modern thing. You might say, well, yeah, because, you know, in modern day, we understand that the ancient traditions and this old mysticism doesn't really hold sway anymore, so we've created familiar gods. No, this is a problem that goes all the way back. There's a quote out of one of the commentaries I was reading this week. It says this, in the ancient Near East, there was a hierarchy of divinity. Essentially, there's a, uh, to- there's a pyramid of God powers. For example... The Mesopotamian pantheon had a council of seven gods at the top of their hierarchy, followed by numerous other gods. But even the highest gods resembled humans in their character and in their behavior and were subject to many of the same laws and limitations as their human counterparts. In other words, we created gods that sounded and looked and acted just like us. They cared about the things we cared about. They met the needs that we had. They hated the people that we hated. They condemned the things that we condemn. They highlighted the things that we like to highlight. We created familiar gods. Even 3,000 years ago, we were doing this. The thing that we have done in the modern day is we have not abandoned this idea. In fact, in the relentless pursuit of efficiency in humanity, we've opted to cut out the redundant middleman. After all, if we're just going to make gods that look like us and think like us and behave like us and are limited like us, let's get efficient about it and cut out that middleman. I'll just be the God. In fact, if we really want to be efficient, let's just stop calling it God altogether and we'll just say humanity is the one that can determine our future and our past and where we're going and what matters. That's what we do. Because we like gods that are familiar to us. And after all, who's more familiar to you than you? Whose judgments do you think are better than your own? Well, God's here to tell us. You have no idea what you're asking about. In fact, when you try to describe me and my power and the way I would act in these ways, you are neglecting one of the key things that makes me God and not you. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You keep trying to describe me, and all you're doing is describing an idealized version of yourself. Stop. I'm way bigger than that. I'm playing on a different stratosphere. I'm playing on a different field. I'm the one. And here's how you know it as the rain and the snow come down from the heavens and don't return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seeds for the sower and bread for the eater, so my word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve for the purpose in which I sent it. He says, if you want evidence that I am higher than you, my thoughts are higher than you, let's look at the way nature operates. We, I, I'm a kid who grew up very interested in science. I still read very nerdy scientific stuff regularly and this week I came across, as I'm studying this and thinking about this, I come across an article that I think illustrates it perfectly. The article said that scientists have discovered that photosynthesis is actually way more complex than we ever thought and we really don't understand how it works at all. Now, now you might go, what's photosynthesis? Uh, That's okay. Uh, In sixth grade, when you were sleeping, they taught you about this. This is how plants turn sunlight into energy inside the plant, okay? That's just the basic of how it works. And science, for a long time, has felt like, oh, yeah, we understand how this process operates. And this week, they published a study that said, actually, we have no idea how this really works. It seems like there's some phantom quantum mechanic that's happening within the plant There is a mystery at play in just the basic mechanics of how plants turn sunlight into energy, which is one tiny piece of the Earth's ecological system that we have just come to realize we actually don't have any idea how that even works. And what God says is, if you want evidence that I'm operating on a different playing field than you are, not only do I bring the rain and the snow, it accomplishes so many things. Let me start to describe them. It brings water to the earth. It makes it grow. It makes it flower. It brings seed that the sower can then plant, which can be turned into bread, which will feed people. It is an incredibly complex system that God has running both by the intentional word of his power and in the background somehow because he's busy doing other things. He's bringing to bear his kingdom in all of the earth while at the same time bringing about the flowers in the field and the grain that grows and feeds the earth. This is the God that we serve. And what he says is when I say something, that is not something that's going to return empty. The purpose for which I have moved will be accomplished. Job, in in the Old Testament, the oldest book that we have in the Bible, most scholars believe, is the story of Job. If you're unfamiliar, uh, a short summary of the story of Job. Job was a very successful, very wealthy farmer uh, who had huge cattle, big family, lots of land. Really successful. And then everything falls apart. He loses everything. He loses his money. He loses his health. He loses his family. He loses his children. Uh, And in the midst of that chaos in his life, All of his friends and his own heart are attempting to conspire to tell him that the things he believes about God, this stuff, is untrue. They say, you're a fool. After all, if this is what was true about God, how would this happen in your life? And Job is steadfast in his faith. In fact, he turns to God and he says this, I know that you can do all things And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I love this summary because it is so simple. In fact, we could make it even smaller. We could say, God, I know you can do anything you want and everything you want to do, you do. I was talking to a friend uh, before service today, a friend who's going through something very difficult in their life. They've experienced a catastrophic loss. And he described to me how lost he felt in this loss how difficult it was to even come to church, to be a part of the community. Uh, And we were talking because I've experienced loss like that in my life. And I told him and tried to encourage him that the only thing that he can do in this is not try to bring something to the table, not try to manufacture some faith. If he can just remember this, that's all he's being asked to do. God, I know you can do anything you want, and what you want to do, you will accomplish if you can just remember that his promise to you is not going to return void, even in the darkest of place, that's it. That's it. God has good for those that have been called to him. He will bring it about. And even in the darkest of times, you can hold on to just that little glimmer of faith. And it's what God is asking Israel to do in this moment here in Isaiah. And I think it's what he's asking us to do. And he continues saying, here's what the payoff from believing that into the future will look like. Here's what it's going to look like. You will go out in joy and you will be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. And the trees of the field will clap their hands. I'm guessing he's getting poetic here because I don't think he means trees are actually going to clap. But have you ever been out on a really beautiful day in the woods and it feels like this? I've, I've had those times on the trail before. I love it. He says, what will happen in this new kingdom is you will live a life of joy and peace and the songs of the earth will fill your ears. And the trees will be participating in the goodness of God. And then he says, instead of thorn brush, you will grow juniper. And instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. And then you go, what in the world is he talking about? I want you to imagine with me just for a second, What Israel looks like uh, when it's hot and it's dry and it's lonely. You don't have to imagine hard because it's uh, just picture somewhere midway between here and Tucson in June, okay? You know what that looks like? It's like dusty and ugly and dry. There's barely anything growing and what's still there, you wonder how it's even survived. Have you ever hiked in the superstitions after a wet winter and there's cat's claw everywhere? That's what he's saying. Instead of cat's claw, there's going to be something useful like juniper and myrtle. And then you go, why are those things useful? I don't have evidence of this, but this is what I suspect. What Isaiah is, now you have to remember, Israel is in exile in Babylon during this time. And so when he begins to talk this way, I suspect that what he's drawing to attention is one of the ancient seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Uh, Reportedly, the Babylonian capital and, and really under King Nebuchadnezzar had this incredible garden structure that was there in the capital city. They had terraced and built amazing, now that's not an actual photo, it might shock you, that's not a photo of the actual hanging garden. That's a painting from, I think, the 19th century. They had started some archaeological digging in Babylon, and uh, somebody came up with this image of what it looked like. So when you hear hanging gardens, you can picture these like kind of Greek-esque, Roman-esque towers and multiple levels that are all perfectly manicured and are growing beautiful. Here's the reality of what something like the hanging gardens of Babylon illustrates. Power, control, leisure, and my whim is the thing that will be carried out. If you're King Nebuchadnezzar, what you can't do is build something like this in the midst of chaos and war. For instance, if I was to go to the president of Ukraine right now and say, hey, I know things are a little chaotic for you, but could you get started on a beautiful hanging garden? He'd say, what are you kidding? Like, we're just trying to survive If I build something like this, it's going to get blown up tomorrow. No. What Nebuchadnezzar is demonstrating in the capital in Babylon is that he has absolute control and power over his environment and no one can threaten it. And because that is true, look what I can build. This four square mile beautiful garden. Isn't it great? And it is. Interesting side note, the hanging gardens of Babylon are the only one of the ancient seven wonders of the world that we actually don't know where they were. All of the rest of them, you can go and see them. And yet here this garden that is known in legend as being so incredible and so beautiful and so powerful has been lost to history. And God says, when my kingdom comes, I'm going to make that hanging garden everywhere on the earth. And what you're going to see is the juniper flowering, and you're going to see the myrtle flowering. So I'm doing research because this is what I do, and I go, well, what is a myrtle? I don't even know. That sounds like an old lady's name. I don't know. Myrtle? What is a myrtle? Well, apparently, it's a flowering plant in the Middle East. And so then, of course, that starts me down the journey of reading about myrtle. This is my curse that I carry for you. Um, And I come across this article entitled, Myrtle, the Provenance and Meaning of the Plant by one Julia Blakely. She wrote an in-depth article on Myrtle, and here's what she says. I couldn't believe it. In Judaism, Myrtle is known as Hadassah, one of the four sacred plants of the Feast of Tabernacles, because the righteous are compared to Myrtle. As Myrtle spreads fragrance in the world, so did she spread good works. Myrtle represents the community, thought of as a symbol of peace of eden and of marriage. Now if you were here last week, I ended our our time together last week talking about the orange blossom smells in the neighborhood during the springtime. And I said that my wife talked about it being the fragrance of the kingdom. And then this week I read this text about myrtle and I look up this goofy article about myrtle and it talks about how myrtle represented in Judaism This idea of the fragrance of God's community bringing love, bringing good works, peace, a picture of the Garden of Eden to the entire world. And I ran downstairs and I was like, Rachel, never guess what I found. She wasn't quite as excited as I was, but here's what we're talking about. If you've been out uh, driving in the desert, In the last week, anybody been out and got themselves some social media juice this week, got some good pictures of all those flowers? Anyone? Nobody? Okay, well, might I recommend it? You should get out there and get some. Uh, Get a picture of you posing in the flowers and post it on whatever you use to post stuff. Because here's what we have right now. It's a rare desert super bloom what is a desert super bloom? Well, there are very specific conditions that have to happen, and we're experiencing them right now, and they don't happen that often. There's a few things that go into it. The first one is we have to have an unusually wet winter. Check. We also have to have rain deep into what would be normal springtime. Check. Also, what really helps is if on a dime, after that rain, suddenly it warms up and gets very sunny. Check. And what you have is this miraculous happenstance where the desert, which looks dead and lonely, comes to life. There are flowers everywhere. Places you didn't even know flowers existed. Things that you would have called weeds and ripped out of the ground suddenly look like, can I cultivate that in my backyard? That is a beautiful plant. We just went for a bike ride yesterday along a wash out in Queen Creek and there was flowers everywhere. It's incredible. And what God is explaining to Israel is that when his kingdom comes to bear in the world, when you come to the table in repentance and faith, you will be included in a world that he is bringing about. And it is going to look like a super bloom. Everywhere you look where places are dead and lifeless, there will be life and there will be joy and there will be peace. He will bring about the kind of community that he's calling us to be a part of. We struggle and we fight to try to be faithful. And he says in the end, he will be the one to complete what we need. And why will he do something so good, so grand for his people? Why would he make a promise like this to us? Well, he finishes it telling us why. This will be for the Lord's renown, an everlasting sign that will endure forever. The reason that God would do any of this is so that his name would be known in all the earth. And here is what we are being invited into right now. We are being invited to live in that kingdom to come today. One of my favorite theologians uh, and a a good friend of mine is a man named Michael Goheen. He wrote a book uh, that this quote comes from called The Light to the Nations. Here's what he says. The biblical story is not to be understood simply as a local tale about a certain ethnic group or religion. In other words, the story of the Bible is not just about Israel in this place all those years ago. It's not just about Judaism. It's not just about ancient Near Eastern culture. It's about way more than that. He says it begins with the creation of all things. And it ends with the renewal of all things. So whatever story you want to find yourself to be a part of, I have to tell you this story. The story of the scripture supersedes that story. It doesn't matter what your story is. It doesn't matter how good your story has been or how broken your story has been. It doesn't matter how lost you are or how found you are. Every one of your stories hangs on this story because it's the true story of the whole world. And this story begins with a God who creates and makes all things. And he gives us the good news of tomorrow, which is he's going to make all things right. And then he says, because I'm kind and because I'm gracious and because I want people to know, I'm inviting you to participate with me right now in this place, in this time. This week is an incredible time to be able to end in this study, about what God is going to do in the future. Because this week, Holy Week, we're going to spend the next seven days diving in to how does God accomplish it. He accomplishes it through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which we're going to celebrate on Good Friday and Easter. But in the meantime, for those of us who already know that good news, welcome to the kingdom of God. Let's live in it today, and let's pray that God would help us to be those kinds of people. Let's pray. God we come before you. We're thankful for Isaiah and for the study that we've been able to engage in. God we thank you for your promises which are never-ending. God we thank you for your love, which carries us through. God we pray that we would have ears to hear. We pray that we would have eyes to see. God we pray that we would be transformed into the likeness of the people you'd have us to be, people who live in your kingdom, who are submitted to King Jesus. God, who come not because we've accomplished something, not because we have something to offer, but because of your free grace that you've given to your people. God, help us to be the kind of people that bring the fragrance of the kingdom wherever we go. God, help us to be transformed. We want to be the likeness of Jesus in our world. We pray this in his name, amen.